Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we, the Sunday prior to Christmas, um, will kind of run a circuit uh, through the four different Christmas narrative passages that we find in the gospel accounts. And this morning we find ourselves uh, in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. And the title of the message is Grappling with the Virgin Birth. Grappling with the Virgin Birth. And we're speaking about the Virgin Birth of Jesus Christ. And let me begin by reading this passage to you, beginning in Matthew 1, verse 18. Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As you can see from just this passage alone, and there are others that are in the Bible, the virgin birth of Christ is a doctrine that is clearly taught in the Bible, uh, not something that was created centuries later by Christian theologians, but it is a doctrine that defies biology and reason, right? And for this reason, there are many people who reject this doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ outright. The atheist uh, Bill Maher once said, quote, I believed in Santa Claus and the fairy godmother and of course, I believed in a virgin birth, but then something happened that made me doubt all of it. I graduated sixth grade, unquote. In his book, The God Delusion, the anti-theist Richard Dawkins said, and I quote, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment, unquote. What's striking to me is that Bill Maher and Richard Dawkins deny the virgin birth of Christ because they think it is too fantastical to believe, but without feeling the slightest embarrassment, they wholeheartedly embrace the doctrine of the virgin birth of the universe, 
out of absolutely nothing. So if we're choosing miracles here, I find their miracle of the virgin birth of the entire universe too fantastical to believe, far more fantastical than the Bible's teaching in the passage we're looking at today that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That said, we have to admit that the virgin conception and birth of Jesus is a profound mystery, but it's a mystery that God wants us to grapple with rather than avoid. And in our passage today, we're going to find a man named Joseph who is forced to grapple with this miracle in the deepest of ways. A once famous megachurch pastor here in Southern California was asked sometime during a radio interview if he believed himself that Christ was born of a virgin and listen to this pastor's reply. Quote, I cannot imprint or in public deny the virgin birth of Christ, but neither could I preach it or teach it. When I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it, unquote. With that approach, one ends up with a religion that is no bigger than their own brain, right? And who wants that? Well, in our passage today, we're going to find a man named Joseph who was engaged to a woman named Mary, and he had trouble comprehending the fact of the virgin conception of Jesus also. Only he did not have the luxury of not dealing with it. He had to deal with it and figure out what happened because it happened to his fiancée. And I think you'll see from our passage today that when left to his own thoughts in his own head, Joseph himself has a lot of trouble coming to terms with the reality of the virgin conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. But then he receives in the Greek text 38 words of revelation from God. And that's all he needs to come to a place of faith in the reality of the virgin conception and the birth of Jesus. And the way we'll break down our study, as you'll see on your notes, as we work our way through this passage, is we'll observe four stages in Joseph's journey from confusion to courageous belief in the virgin conception of Jesus. Four stages in Joseph's journey from confusion to courageous belief in the virgin conception and then ultimately birth of Jesus. Number one, stage one, he encounters the miracle of the virgin conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. He encounters the miracle of the virgin conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. Observe how the story begins in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. When you think of betrothal in biblical times, 
Just think of modern day engagement on steroids. Joseph and Mary's marital vows have already been exchanged. They are not living together right now as husband and wife, but in the eyes of the law, they are legally husband and wife, so much so that ending their relationship during this betrothal period would require literally a divorce. During this time period of betrothal that Joseph and Mary are in right now, Joseph is making preparations to provide a home for Mary, getting ready for the day when he will come and take her to be in his home as his wife. And it would be then that they would physically consummate their marriage and Joseph could then fulfill his dream of living a quiet, peaceful life with Mary until death parts them. But something happens here in verse 18 that shatters Joseph's quiet dream. Look again at verse 18. During this time when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. We know from Luke's account that after being told that she would conceive the Messiah in her womb, Mary had gone to Judea to visit her cousin Elizabeth for three months, and then she returned to Nazareth. So it was probably at this point that Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. And because we have the luxury of reading verse 18, we know, according to this text, that she is with child by means of the Holy Spirit. But Joseph does not know that yet. All he knows is that Mary is pregnant. He doesn't realize it yet, but he has just encountered the reality of the virgin conception of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah in the womb of Mary. Well, how does he respond to this wonderful development? This leads us to the second stage in the story of Joseph's journey from confusion to courageous belief in the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. Number two, his own understanding leaves him wanting to divorce Mary for unfaithfulness. His own understanding leaves him wanting to divorce Mary for unfaithfulness. Observe what the text says in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, wanted to send her away secretly. How's that for a response to the most wonderful thing that's ever happened in human history? Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant, and he wants to send her away. And the Greek verb that is translated send away here is one of the Greek words for divorce. He wants to divorce her. In a nutshell, we learn two things about Joseph here in verse 19. First of all, by explicit statement, we learn that Joseph is a righteous man, which means he sought to live a life of obedience to the law of God. Secondly, we learn by implication that he is a merciful man. The text speaks of him as not wanting to disgrace Mary, but instead he wanted to send her away secretly or as privately and discreetly as possible so as not to bring public 
humiliation and shame to Mary. And he's thinking all of this because he doesn't, in his mind, she has been unfaithful and has become pregnant through some other means than the Holy Spirit, which he's not even entertaining at this point. It's interesting when you read the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 22, there's actually provision made for what a man should do if immorality is discovered on the part of a woman during the betrothal period of the relationship. And you know what you're supposed to do? You stone the woman together with the man that she had been unfaithful with. In the first century, though, which is where we are right now in Matthew 1, common practice was not to do the stoning, but to divorce such a woman, declaring her unfaithfulness as the reason for the divorce, and thereby preserving the husband's honor and leaving the disgraced woman to deal with the shame of her divorce on these grounds of immorality. But this is not what Joseph wants to do. Being a righteous man, he wants to divorce her, but do so secretly in order to do the best he can to preserve her honor. And yet, even this solution is not sitting easy with Joseph. In verse 19, we are told what Joseph did not want to do, and we're also told what he wanted to do. He was not wanting to disgrace her, But he did want to divorce her secretly, but evidently he is still paralyzed and still thinking about it. In verse 20, the text says, but when he had considered this, so we're being told that he's giving consideration to this decision. And the Greek word translated considered is actually a compound word. It's the word in, I-N, attached to the Greek word for anger or passion. This word means to think deeply upon something about which one has very passionate feelings. And I think we can all imagine Joseph's feelings at this point, right? Joseph is hurting. He's angry. He's deeply frustrated with the lack of a simple way forward. And he's conflicted. I think sometimes we naively tend to view biblical characters as two-dimensional creatures who somehow know that they're in a Christmas play, that everyone's watching. We imagine that Joseph would hear that Mary is pregnant and respond by saying, oh, I know what's going on. This is the Christmas story, and this is going to be in the first chapter of Matthew one day, and I get to be in the Christmas narrative that generations to come will read and write songs about. No, but that's not the way Joseph is thinking right now. Trust me. He's thinking, this is my wife who has pledged herself to me, and I have pledged myself to her. I've sought to be pure and to guard her purity, yet she is pregnant, which means that another man has been with her, which may mean that she has been unfaithful to me, which means that Mary is not the woman I thought I had become betrothed to, 
which means that I won't be the husband to her that I thought I would be. My dreams of our life together are over, and my next action point is to divorce her and let her go. That's where he's at at this point. He's devastated, feeling stung by Mary's apparent betrayal. He's confused. Everything he knows about Mary doesn't fit with the fact that she is right now pregnant. So he's thinking these things over with deeply passionate feelings. And he's arrived at a decision of what he needs to do, but he's paralyzed and keeps giving consideration to this matter. We know from verse 20 that Joseph is also experiencing the emotion of fear. We see that in verse 20, being afraid to take Mary as his wife. And we know this because the angel of the Lord has to tell him, do not be afraid or literally stop being afraid to take Mary as your wife. So just imagine the turmoil and the emotions that are roiling inside of Joseph's head as he contemplates the need to end his marriage to Mary. He's agitating over these things, and evidently he goes to bed and falls asleep. Before we get to the next stage of Joseph's journey, I want to leave all of you with this thought. Among the many things that we can say about Christianity, we have to say that Christianity is a religion religion of the mind. In fact, if there ever was a religion of the mind, it is Christianity. We're called in the book of Proverbs to seek after wisdom as we would seek for hidden treasures. We're called in the Bible to consider things carefully to think with sober judgment, and to be continuously renewing our minds. We are called in many places in Scripture to use our minds to meditate on the truth. Christianity is without a doubt a religion that calls us to intellectual engagement. And yet, and yet, The same God who calls us to deep, rigorous thought is the very God who also tells us that reason alone will never get us to the truth. The same Bible that tells us to seek after wisdom and to think also tells us do not lean on your own understanding. And this is the case with Joseph in our passage today as he looks at this phenomenon of his wife's pregnancy. He gives it a tremendous amount of deep thought, yet with all of his deep thinking, he never arrives at the truth of what has happened to Mary. Joseph doesn't realize it just yet, but he is a man who has reached the edge of his reason and stands in need of revelation from God. And that revelation is going to take him in an entirely different direction than the direction that his normal human reasoning is taking him right now. 
This leads us to the third stage of Joseph's journey from confusion to courageous belief and the virgin conception of Jesus. Number three, he, Joseph, receives divine revelation. He receives divine revelation regarding Jesus conceived in Mary's womb. Observe what happens in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Notice that the text does not say Joseph dreamed that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Instead, it says an angel of the Lord actually appeared to him in or in the context of a dream, which means that an angel of the Lord actually appeared to Joseph, and the dream was simply the venue in which the angel of the Lord made his appearance to Joseph. And observe how the angel refers to Joseph. He appears, verse 20, saying, Joseph, son of David, Joseph, before he hears anything else, would know right away that something pretty amazing is going down here. Joseph was no doubt used to people calling him Joseph, or perhaps Joseph, son of David. Perhaps his friends called him Broseph. Jacob was his dad's name, so some people no doubt did refer to him as Joseph, son of David, but, or son of Jacob, but here the angel refers to him as Joseph, son of David. And certainly, David is his ancestor, but to be called by this title would have been highly unusual for Joseph. Joseph would know right away that something noble And royal is about to be asked of him. I officiated a wedding yesterday in Thousand Oaks. And before the wedding, I was talking to another man. And a woman came up from behind us. And the first words out of her mouth were, you guys look like really strong men. So we turned around to see a woman who was needing help moving some heavy furniture And she said, could you guys help me move this furniture? And so what did we do? We displayed our manly strength, and we helped her. But here's my point. This woman had a task for us, and we could have known something about that task simply by how she referred to us, right? And that's what's happening here. The angel is about to ask something of Joseph that is truly royal and epic in its nature. But before he asks this thing of Joseph, he reminds Joseph of his identity as a royal son of David. The angel continues, speaking as a messenger from God. The angel says to Joseph, "'Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife.'" And again, this language indicates that Joseph had been afraid to take Mary as his wife, no doubt for fear of displeasing God. And the angel is saying, hey, you're good with God if you marry her. Stop being afraid to take Mary as your wife. And then observe the reason he gives. 
Verse 20, for the child who has been conceived in her is of, and let's stop right there for a second. Imagine how riveted Joseph would be right at this point. No one would have cared more about how this sentence will finish than Joseph. Where did this baby that is in Mary's womb come from? What treacherous man is the father of this child in her womb? And you can bet that Joseph is listening with rapt attention. And instead of hearing this angel give the name of some evil man who had been with Mary, the angel says, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Wow. This means there is no earthly father to account for the presence of the child in Mary's womb. This child is in her womb miraculously through the Holy Spirit who caused this conception to occur. And not only that, but the angel tells Joseph that the child in her womb will come to full term and be a boy. In verse 21, the angel says, she will bear a son and you, Joseph shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Understand that naming someone back in this day was a demonstration of authority and dominion and responsibility. The angel is saying to Joseph, even though you are not the biological father of the child in Mary's womb, God wants you to be the one who names him. God wants you to assume responsibility for him. God wants you to take this child as your own and be an earthly father to him and to bring him up as if he were your own. Essentially, the angel is not simply telling Joseph to take Mary as his wife, but he is also saying to Joseph, take this boy in her womb as your own, and it is to you that I give the honor of naming him. As for the name that Joseph is to give the child, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means literally Jehovah saves. And pay attention to that. Jesus, the name, means Jehovah saves. And why is Joseph supposed to call Mary's son this name? The angel literally says, for he will save. Literally, he himself, he himself will save his people from their sins. So think about it, guys. If, if Mary's son is to be named Jehovah saves, and the reason given is because he himself will save, then that means that Jesus is Jehovah God. What will Jesus save his people from? The angel says he will save his people from 
their sins, making it very clear to Joseph the kind of Messiah that this child in Mary's womb will be. Jesus will not be saving the people of Israel from the evil Romans or from the sins of other people right now. He will be saving them from a more important threat, which is their own sins. Evidently, the people of Israel's number one problem was not the Romans. Their greatest problem was themselves. It was their own sins. And the child in Mary's womb will somehow, some way, save them from their own sins. And the same is true for us today. The most important sins that you need to be saved from and that I need to be saved from are not the sins of other people, but from our own sins. That's our greatest need. And deep down, you know this is true. And we learn here that Jesus came into the world to save you from your sins. An announcement which speaks volumes about you and about him. Nowhere in the Old Testament is any human person ever said to save people from their sins. Everyone knew that only God has the power to do such a thing. So as Joseph listens to this angel and hears the reason for his name and hears about the work of saving from sins that Jesus will do, Joseph would know that this child in Mary's womb is nothing less than Jehovah God, at least as much as Joseph could have comprehended at this point. And guys, imagine the impact that these few words of revelation must have had on Joseph and how far these words would have moved him from point A to point B. Joseph goes to bed thinking, my wife has betrayed me. She's pregnant by some other man. My dream of being married to her and walking through life together with her is shattered. Our marriage will end in divorce before it even gets off the ground. And what a disgrace this whole thing will be. Yet the angel of the Lord appears from God to Joseph and speaks thus far merely 38 words of revelation to Joseph. And after just 38 words of revelation from God, where is Joseph now? Joseph now realizes several things at once. Mary has not been unfaithful to me. The child in her has been miraculously conceived of the Holy Spirit of God. This child will be born and grow up and be a savior. He will save me and others from our sins. This child is the long-awaited Messiah whom God has promised to send. He is Jehovah God, and I'm being asked to adopt this Jehovah child as my own and name him and be his dad. That's just amazing to think about. What a vast Grand Canyon of distance there is between point A and point B for Joseph. 
And it was simply a few words, 38 words in the Greek text of revelation from God that brought Joseph all of that distance from point A to point B. Imagine what a difference just a few words of revelation from God could make in your own life. Or how about all 783,000 words of divine revelation that are in the Bible, available for you to read and to listen to every day? If you find yourself this morning at some awful point A and you need to get to a better point B, I'm here to tell you that it is divine revelation that will get you there, just as it did for Joseph. But you have to make a decision that you will not lean upon your own understanding, but lean on God's revelation. Now, actually, it's, it's probably likely that the angel speaks more than just these 38 words to Joseph most translations uh, that I think you guys would have on your laps um, have the quotation from the angel ending in verse 21, and then they treat verses 22 and 23 as commentary from Matthew to provide Old Testament support for what is happening. That is perfectly possible. But it is good for us to remember that there were no quotation marks in the original Greek text. So it is an interpretive decision by translators to close the angel's quote at the end of verse 21. Some commentators suggest that it's better if we understand verses 22 and 23 to be a part of the words that the angel is speaking to Joseph. And they would view these two verses as the angel's way of providing scriptural assurance to Joseph that what he was announcing to Joseph was in keeping with God's ordained plan. And think about why this might be the case. Joseph could easily wake up from his dream apart from verses 22 and 23, and say, man, I dreamed I saw an angel who told me that Mary has a child by the Holy Spirit in her and I'm supposed to marry her, but how do I know I didn't just dream that? Because it's something I created in my mind that I wanted to be true. So it would seem to make sense for the angel to give Joseph this Old Testament scripture in order to give him something solid and biblical to hang his hat on, in order for him to know for sure the truth of what the angel has just announced to him. And according to this interpretation, which we'll roll with, it is the angel who is still speaking to Joseph in verse 22 and saying to him, look at verse 22, now all this has happened to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then... The angel quotes from Isaiah 7:14, where the prophet Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. This is a prophecy that was delivered by the prophet Isaiah over 700 years prior to this moment in Matthew chapter 1. And the angel is saying to Joseph, what I've just announced to you is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14. Joseph, no doubt, would have been aware of this passage And upon hearing it from the angel, he would now have scriptural revelation to validate what the angel is saying to him. Joseph would now be thinking this prophecy from over 700 years ago is coming true in the womb of the woman that I am engaged to. And I'm the one who's being asked to name the child in her womb. And I'm being told that people shall call his name Emmanuel. The angel has told me to name him Jesus, but I'm being told that one of the names that people will call him is Emmanuel, which means God with us. By the way, does it seem odd to you? This always bothered me when I was a kid. Um... Does it seem odd to you that Isaiah 7.14 says that his name would be called Emmanuel, yet the angel is telling Joseph to name him Jesus? Maybe that stood out to you at some point, but it really shouldn't if you think about it. Uh, Just looking at Isaiah alone, we're told that the Messiah is going to be called a handful of names. Here we're told that he will be called Emmanuel from Isaiah 7:14 in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 we're told that his name will be called wonderful counselor the mighty god the everlasting father and the prince of peace according to the old testament the messiah will be called many names and the angel is merely giving one or actually two in this passage of those names Think about it. Most of us in this room have been called by more than one name throughout our life, right? Some of us could list several names that we've been called over the years. I did a recount this week, and I came up with 12 names that I have been called throughout my life by family and friends and by my wife and by my children and by people who weren't being very nice uh, to me. And I'm sure most of you could list several names that you have been called throughout your life. And maybe some of those names are befitting to a character trait that is manifest in you. The same is true with Jesus. Jesus will be called many names, each of which reflect amazing things that are true of him. And Emmanuel is one of them. And that's what the angel is reminding Joseph of as he quotes from Isaiah 7.14. But anyway, let's recap for a moment before we get to the fourth stage. Joseph is thinking deeply about his wife's pregnancy, but his own reasoning fails to tell him that a virgin conception of the Messiah has occurred in her womb, but then Joseph receives revelation from God through this angel telling him that this is exactly what has happened. Now Joseph has a choice to make, and the choice is between 
what his own human reasoning told him was happening and what God's revelation told him was happening. So Joseph is at a crossroads of decision right now. In which way is he going to go? Will he stick with his own reasoning or will he follow God's revelation delivered through this angel and through the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14? And this brings us to the final stage in Joseph's journey from confusion to courageous belief in the virgin conception of Jesus. Number four, he follows God's revelation regarding Jesus conceived in Mary's womb. He follows God's revelation rather than his own reasoning regarding Jesus conceived in Mary's womb. Observe what Joseph does in verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. There's a wonderful feeling of immediacy and swift obedience here. Joseph is clearly a man who has surrendered to God, just like Mary is. And Joseph doesn't wake up and take the opportunity to complain to God about how upsetting this whole thing has been to him. And he doesn't hesitate to obey either. The text says, I love this, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife. And in that one act, Joseph is embracing all of the mystery and the challenges and the blessings that lie on the road ahead. I'm sure he still has a thousand questions in his mind, but that doesn't keep him from obeying the voice of God. He takes Mary as his wife, and in doing that, he is in that same moment taking Jesus as both his son and his savior. You know, we often make much of the fact, and rightly so, that God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus because of the kind of woman that she was that would uniquely qualify her to be the mother of the Messiah. And that's absolutely true. But part of the reason that God chose Mary was also because of the kind of man that she was engaged to, a righteous man who stood ready to believe the impossible and obey whatever God instructed him to do. And we even see the extent of that obedience at the end of verse 25. We're told in verse 25 that Joseph takes Mary as his wife, which means that he brings her into his home where they now live together as husband and wife in every way except one. Toward the end of verse 25, the text says, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. You ever wondered why the text bothers to tell you that? That Joseph, even after bringing her into his home, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son? This is actually part of the reason I think it was the angel who was quoting from Isaiah 7.14 in Joseph's dream. In that passage, 
It says, a virgin shall conceive and what? Give birth. It will be a virgin who conceives and a virgin who gives birth. The prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 is not simply that a virgin will conceive, but also that a virgin will give birth. So in keeping with the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, Joseph keeps Mary a virgin until she gives birth. Finally, we're told the final thing that Joseph did in obedience to the angel. At the end of verse 25, we read, and he, speaking of Joseph, called him Jesus. This was so much more than simply the naming of a child. This is a confession of faith, the shortest and yet most eloquent confession of faith ever uttered by anyone. Joseph looks upon this miracle child after he is born, and he calls him Jesus, Yeshua, Jehovah saves fully believing the promise of the angel that this is the one who will save his people from their sins. By the way, this is really the only word that Joseph is essentially quoted as speaking in the gospel accounts and how perfect it is, Jesus, Jehovah saves On the pages of Scripture, this is all Joseph has to say to us. Jesus, Jehovah saves. All in all, when Joseph was faced with a choice, do I follow my own reasoning inside my own head or do I follow God's revelation? Joseph chose to follow God's revelation the full distance from a broken heart all the way to the greatest one-word confession of faith anyone could ever utter, Jesus. And that word Jesus coming from Joseph's lips is the last word of this particular story left hanging in the air for all of us to behold and to ponder. You know, on the 25th anniversary of Larry King's career as a broadcaster, Larry King was asked, which figure from human history would he most love to interview? His answer, Jesus Christ. Why? Listen to his answer. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. And then he says, the answer to that question would define history for me. Larry King was no Christian, but he got it. If Jesus is indeed virgin born, that fact should define history for us all. And Jesus should be the one that we all should most desire to interview and to pose life's most important questions too, right? Think about the three most fundamental questions that anyone can ask. Question number one, where did we come from? Question number two, 
what has gone wrong with me and with the world? And number three, what is the solution to what has gone wrong with me and with the world? And there's actually a fourth question that ranks as high as those three questions, and that is, who should I listen to in order to answer these three fundamental questions? Because there are many people who would love to answer those three fundamental questions for us, and they would provide us a whole variety of answers, competing answers. But who is the most qualified person to give us the answers to life's most important questions? Well, if Jesus is in fact born of a virgin, then that means that he is the one that we should listen to above all others. And our passage today makes it clear that Jesus is indeed the virgin-born one. And keep in mind that Jesus' virgin birth is only the beginning of his credentials. He also lived a perfect life and never sinned once. He did miracles and healed the sick and raised the dead and taught like no one ever taught. He did so many good works throughout his life that the Apostle John says even the world itself couldn't contain the books that could be written of all that Jesus did. And then, on top of all of that, he died on the cross for our sins, thereby loving us with a greater love than any other love we have ever known, that he was willing to lay down his life for you and for me. And then he was raised from the dead and then ascended by God to God's right hand in heaven, where Jesus now reigns on high in heaven, the highest position of honor that we can even imagine. Jesus isn't just the most qualified person for the job of answering your most fundamental questions about life. He's in a league all by himself. And there's an infinite number of reasons why he is the one that you should listen to above all others. And I mean listen to every day by opening up the Bible, which is his word, daily, and letting this one speak to you through his word. Speaking of the three questions I just mentioned in our passage today, we find the answer to two of those three we learn what has gone wrong with us, and that is sin. We are sinners who have sinned against God, who created us for a relationship with him. We have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. And our biggest problem in life is not other people's sins. Your problem in life is not the Democrat's sins or the Republicans' sins, or your boss's sins, or your spouse's sins. Your greatest problem in life is your sins. And the rescue you need more than any other is to be rescued from your own sin. And that's true of me also. 
But how does this salvation from our own sins happen? Who is it that can save us? Can we save ourselves? Muhammad Ali uh, passed away, I believe it was in 2016. And he lived his life to his credit with an awareness that I'm going to die one day and I'm going to stand before God at the judgment. He was keenly aware of that, spoke of that fact on a number of occasions. At his funeral, his wife Lonnie delivered a eulogy and near the very end of her eulogy, and you can find this on YouTube, she spoke of Muhammad Ali's concern about salvation. He was obsessed with salvation in his final months and years. And she said this about him in his final years. And I quote, he awoke every morning thinking about his own salvation. And he would often say, I just want to get to heaven. And I've got to do a lot of good deeds to get there. Unquote. My heart broke when I heard those words from her. Because according to the words of this angel in the passage that we're looking at today, it is Jesus who saves us from our sins. It is not us who save us from our own sins. It is Jesus, and he came to earth to do exactly that. He was born of a woman in the town of Bethlehem and laid in a manger. But as Russell Moore says, Jesus didn't stay in a manger. He learned to crawl and then to toddle and then to walk. And he kept walking right to a public execution to be a sacrifice there, carrying away the sins of the world. And how true that is. Jesus died on the cross to provide real atonement for sins. And he stands ready to this very day in this moment to forgive anyone who abandons all hope of saving themselves. And they come to him and believe in him and receive the free gift of atonement that God provides for them through Jesus and through his shed blood at the cross. If you have never cried out to Jesus and called upon him to be your Lord and your Savior, if you have never looked to him and said, Jesus, you whose name means Jehovah saves, save me. If you have never done that, you can do that today, even right now where you are seated. And I urge you to cry out to Jesus, to call upon his name, and to believe in him. If you do that, he will be, he won't just save you, he will be pleasured to save you, delighted to forgive you of your sins, and to make you a child of God, and to save you forever. Just in closing, one final takeaway for all of us. We learn in our passage today that sometimes life's greatest blessings begin with devastation and shattered dreams, just like what happens to Joseph in our passage today. I mean, in verse 18, he's at, you know, 
in the early verses of this passage, he's at the lowest point of his life near the beginning of this story today, little realizing that the circumstances that are bringing him the pain are the beginnings of something more wonderful than he could even begin to imagine. Maybe this morning you find yourself in painful circumstances. Maybe certain dreams of yours have been disappointed, if not shattered, and you don't know where to go from here But boy, you're thinking about it just like Joseph was. Please hear me when I tell you that God is working and he's up to something bigger than you can imagine. And this is the perfect moment in your life for you to open your heart to God and to his revelation and to let him speak his revelation into you through his word This is the time to surrender yourself to him and obey him and let him bring you into his dreams for you because his dreams for you are far richer and far bigger than any dreams you could ever dream for yourself. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, eye has not seen nor has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. If Joseph were here in the service this morning, we would know exactly where he is when I read that verse because he would laugh out loud at that verse and tell us all how true it really is because it's what happened to him. And it's what can happen to you if you, like Joseph did, will believe in Christ. Let's pray and ask God to help all of us to do this. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the amazing grace and condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world to live among us. And then to die on the cross to be our Savior and our Lord. I pray if there's any here this morning, Lord, who have never taken that step of believing in Jesus and calling upon his name, that you would touch their hearts and lead them to do that today. And I pray for all of us who do know you, Lord, that I know as I look at this passage and I'm struck afresh by the truth about Jesus, the gravitas of his person, what he came to do, and I still see sin in me that I need to be saved from. But I'm also so thankful for the grace and the forgiveness that when I fall short, I can come running to you and repent and you are always so delighted to forgive. You delight in those who cling to your mercy and it's that grace that serves as wind beneath my wings and the wings of so many of us in this room to soar with hope 
as we seek to become more and more of what you want us to be. Thank you for Jesus, the one whose name means Jehovah saves. We say these things to you in his name. And all God's people said, amen.